So maybe it's not that we need to write a new law. We need to figure out why they're not being prosecuted as such. I would just suggest that sometimes it does take a, another law to broaden the foundation and to help our court system understand. Always, it's we have to pass another law. We can't just enforce the ones that we have. We just have to keep making more of them instead of addressing the real problem. And you wonder why we can't get anything done. Here we go. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to yet another incredible installment from very high above all other puerile and insipid forms of Wyoming mainstream media. This is Cowboy State Politics. I, of course, am your illustrious host, David Iverson, firmly ensconced behind the silver Cowboy State Politics microphone and broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to the program. In a follow-up to our episode that was published on Monday, the Sweetwater County School District Number 1 has responded to the lawsuit that they were served with on Monday. From the Cow Pie on April 25th, Claire McFarland writes in an article entitled Sweetwater County School District, Claims Made in Transgender Student Lawsuit False and Fabricated. Quote, The Wyoming School District that was sued last week for allegedly helping socially transition a high school student without her parents' knowledge says the lawsuit's complaints are, quote, false and fabricated. Quote, the allegations made by this out-of-state organization are completely false, fabricated, and appear to be intended solely for the purpose of inciting the public, said Nicole Bolton, Human Resources Director for the Sweetwater County School District No. 1, in a Tuesday email sent to the Cowboy State Daily. As I told you on Monday's program, the Willies also allege that the school district itself forced teachers and administrators to refer to students by their preferred pronouns. Now, here's the funny part. The school district has performed a, quote, thorough and complete investigation of the lawsuit's claims, says the email, adding that the district was served Monday with the complaint, quote, all employees of the district consistently ensure that the best interests of all students are served, reads the email. The district will have no further comment on the matter at this time. No kidding! because they've been caught red-handed, and it's on video what they told Sean Willie, the father of the student in question. So anyway, the lawsuit is a go, and the school has responded, and I'll keep you updated on any further developments. More broadly speaking, however, my friends, all of this diversity, equity, and inclusion has infected our entire culture. You can't go anywhere without, without it being shoved in your face. I personally tried to take a week off from all of this diversity, equity, and inclusion, and pornographic books, and all of this nonsense, and I wasn't even remotely successful. It's everywhere you look. And the bizarre part of this whole thing is that there's a group that is offended when people actually want to talk about whether or not this is appropriate for children. The Wyoming legislature couldn't even pass a bill that would prevent kindergartners through third grade students 
from being shown all of this pornographic material. Like Every parent that I've ever met has said that the only thing that kindergartners need to know about sex ed is that boys and girls have cooties and they should just stay away. It was not that long ago, last summer actually, that I published an episode entitled It's Okay for Your Kids. And it was talking about show, the showing of a movie in the Cheyenne South High School. That's the one that's called Growing Up Trans. It has that really disturbing piece in it where there's that nine-year-old child talking about how they've transitioned from a boy to a girl. As if a nine-year-old even possesses the capacity to comprehend the life-changing implications of these surgeries. They couldn't possibly. And think about this another way. We don't let people drink until they're 21 years of age. Why, you might ask? Well, because most scientists would say that the human brain is not fully developed until age 21. You can't legally go watch an R-rated movie until you're 18. Why? Because R-rated movies generally contain violence and sex and drug use and alcohol use and all of those things young people should not be exposed to. And here we are, having a debate as to whether or not we should show pornographic material to kindergartners. Which, by the way, is not dissimilar than the same stuff that you are required to be 18 years of age in order to purchase. You know, the dirty magazines behind the counter that are covered in black plastic. And that's another question in and of itself. Why are they all covered with black plastic? That's so that young people can't see the covers of them. Because they're too pornographic for impressionable people to view. And here's another question for you. Why don't libraries have a collection of back issues of Penthouse Forum? I mean, there's no pornographic images in those, so why are they not in our library catalogs? We could make a convincing argument that issues of Penthouse Forum from 1985 would have historical value. Certainly, they would have cultural differences than what we're experiencing right now. So why don't we have those available in the library? Because it's just another type of pornography. It doesn't contain pictures of pornographic situations. It contains those pornographic situations in words. And we, as a society, have decided that that's not something that's valuable to have in a library. And so, as a culture, we, have a, we follow the obscenity laws and we keep them out of schools. And we keep them out of public libraries. And we don't expend public funds on them. Except, of course, if that library is in a school. In that case, apparently, there are no holds barred. My friends, there's no doubt about it. We are at a profoundly upside-down place in our country. We have college presidents claiming that all of this pornography is really no different than what's in the Bible. In case you've forgotten, that was Walter Tribley of Sheridan College. Here he is saying it. The judgment of what is obscene and what is not, we heard some pretty clear examples of things that would probably easily fall into a category of pornography, but it doesn't always get that clear. Even our King James Bible in the Old Testament has passages that could be considered obscene. Yeah, and he is supposed to be an educated education professional. But this is just one example of what I'm talking about, my friends. We absolutely are living in upside-down world. One of my prized books is a world history textbook from 1949. On the title page, it says, Printed for Use in Pittsburgh Public Schools. The book contains the Lord's Prayer in seven languages. Now just think about this for a minute. In 1949, had you walked into a school with the very books that we are debating right now, you would probably be prosecuted. At the very least, you'd be thrown out of the school, and the citizens of the community would probably drag you down to the town square. Today, 
If you were a teacher and tried to use this very world history textbook, you'd probably be fired, or at the very least, they wouldn't let you through the front door with it in your possession. Now set my prized history book aside and think about this one. Imagine you're a history teacher and you attempted to teach from one of the world's oldest history books. You know the one. It's called the Bible. What would happen to you? Well, you'd probably be fired, you'd definitely be vilified in the press, and you'd be called some sort of radical fundamentalist. But just think about that juxtaposition, my friends. In a short 70 years, how far we've come, how far we've descended in what we consider to be education. It's absolutely amazing, my friends. Joan Barron at the Casper Star Tribune is one of the people that I don't pick on very often on the program, or I don't think that I've ever picked on her. That is, until today. In an op-ed she wrote, entitled Creating Another House Caucus, she makes the ridiculous claim that the reason that we didn't get a lot of bills passed in this past legislative session is because the Freedom Caucus didn't want to debate anything. Her strange comment is diametrically opposed to every strange excuse that the Redcoats used as to why the legislature was moving so slowly this year. There are too many new legislators. They just really don't understand the process, and they want to debate everything. She doesn't mention that in the first two weeks of the legislature, there were only eight bills that were brought up on the floor of the House. Eight in two weeks. Granted, the first week had two days of pomp and circumstance, which traditionally only took one, and there was a giant fight over some insane rules that House leadership wanted to pass. But in the end, it was only eight bills. And Joan Barron doesn't mention the 80-some-odd budget amendments where each and every single one of them were debated on the floor of the House. She doesn't mention any of that. Nope, it's because nobody wanted to debate. That's why it didn't happen. Quote, It's because they had their instructions and knew how all or most of them would vote. They saw no need to talk about these bills. As a result, there was little or no debate on some measures. This Miss Barron is patently false, and as the seasoned journalist you are, you should know better than to print something that's not true. But there again, remember which Wyoming publication she works for. The Pravda on the Platte, The Red Star, The Casper Star Tribune. Why should I even expect that there would be some journalistic honesty? Now, to be absolutely fair, Joan Barron has been a journalist in Wyoming for a very long time. And I do enjoy reading some of her columns, though I don't hardly ever agree with her. But this one is most definitely a low point. The Wyoming media just can't seem to keep their story straight. Here's what rising Redcoat star Barry Crago told Sheridan Media as to why the legislative session was moving so slowly. The debate is, uh, different. You know, I would say, one, it's been a lot slower pace. We didn't get through near as many bills as normal. And, you know, there's probably a multitude of reasons for that. There's a lot of new people. And so the debate is different. Not bad, not good, just different. Because of the multitude or large proportion of new people, there's just, I guess, the process is different. For me, that's different. It's a little bit different than what Joan Barron said happened during the legislative session, isn't it? But I guess when you're pushing a narrative, it's easy to just change the story as you move along so that it fits your own agenda. Moving on. On Monday and Tuesday, the Joint Judiciary Committee met in Sheridan at Sheridan College. It was the first committee meeting of this year's interim session. 
If you're unfamiliar with what that is, Wyoming has only a brief legislative session down in Cheyenne. On one year, they'll have a general session where they discuss pretty much any bill, and that lasts roughly two months. And then the following year, they'll have the constitutionally mandated budget session, where theoretically most of the bills discussed will be specifically related to the budget. And those that aren't require a higher vote margin of two-thirds. Well, in between those two sessions, they have what's called the interim, and that's where committees meet to discuss various pieces of legislation. Monday and Tuesday was the first of these interim legislative sessions. Most of what was discussed was law enforcement-centric issues. The Department of Criminal Investigation gave a long presentation on Internet Crimes Against Children, or what they refer to as ICAC. There was some fascinating testimony from a couple over around Cody. They told the committee about a custody fight between the child's parents. The long and the short of it is these two parents have a custody agreement that was dealt with through the courts. The dad in this situation continued to violate the court's orders and at one point basically kidnapped the child. To put it simply, the father in this situation continually violated the court's orders and really nothing happened to him. He would violate the custody order given to him by the court, they'd hold him in contempt, and then he would violate the court's orders yet again. All of this culminated in him picking up the child from school and then keeping him for 45 days. This couple from Cody said that the child was out of school for 26 days straight. This might sound kind of strange if you're not a parent. I mean, a lot of parents who have custody agreements are very familiar with all of these issues. But for the rest of us, we just kind of assume that when somebody violates the court's orders, then they're arrested and thrown in jail. You see this all the time with probation violations. An offender is released on a given set of conditions. That if they follow the court's orders, then they can be free to walk around and go to work and not have to go to jail. And when they don't follow the court's orders, well, then they're arrested, their probation is violated, and then they're sent to the big house. That's how we all sort of assume that these things go. But with custody cases, that's not exactly the case hardly ever. And no doubt, custody cases are not simple ones. They're probably the most complicated issues that our court system faces. In any case, what was related to the committee is the dad in this situation continued to violate the court's orders, nothing was done to him, and in the end, it only harmed the child. And this is where we began today's program, and we'll get to it right after the break. But first, an absolutely obscene profit timeout. My friends, I've never been one to count my eggs before the chickens have actually laid them. But in this case, maybe, perhaps, just maybe, we might be done with snow for this year. Of course, it's Wyoming, and you can never be too sure about that. Regardless, it's time to start doing something about that building you've been dreaming about all winter long. You know, the one that would have prevented all of your fun summertime toys from being covered up with snow all winter long? The two guys that you should talk to are Nick and Jesse at Morton Buildings. They're the experts in metal building construction. They've been doing it longer than anybody else around, and they definitely do it better than anybody else around. 
Their phone number is 307-674-2532. Just give them a call, tell them what you've been thinking about, and they'll handle all the details. Again, their phone number is 307-674-2532, or you can check them out on their website at mortonbuildings.com. Gunrunner Auctions is one of the nation's leading online auction houses, and they're celebrating their 25th year. Think about that, 25 years of selling the finest firearms available. They specialize in estate firearms. The first thing they do is Scott Weber, the owner, travels to the estate and appraises the firearms for the heirs. He then takes them to his Cody auction facility where he and his team research them, sometimes getting factory letters from the Cody Museum to tell you more about that firearm's history. Every month, beginning on the 7th, Scott and his team post 500 fine firearms for sale. All of the auctions start at 20 bucks, and there's no reserve. And they only charge 15% for selling your precious firearms. They've sold the personal collections of Elvis Presley, Steve McQueen, Alex McCord, and Herb Parsons, just to name a few. And it's not just firearms you'll find at Gunrunner Auctions. They usually have a wide selection of ammunition, both common calibers like 9mm .223 or .30-06, but also some of the obscure wildcat calibers that you can't find at your local firearms store. So, if you're a gun nut just like I am, go to GunRunnerAuctions.com, and I promise you, you'll find something that you didn't even know that you were looking for. That's GunRunnerAuctions.com. If you've been looking for a place to advertise your business, I'd ask you to consider sponsoring this program. You're not going to find a more loyal listener base than the one right here. And I can say with absolute certainty that no one is going to beat my advertising rates. As I've told you on the program, investigative journalism is dying in Wyoming. Right now, I can't put my finger on a single investigative journalist. That's why I started this program, to tell you the truth of what's happening in our state. So if you want to be part of that, shoot me an email. The address is david at cowboystatepolitics.com. I'd love to get that conversation started with you. And now, back to the program. Every year, there are around 600 new laws proposed in the Wyoming legislature. Take a guess at how many laws they repeal each year. Most of the time, that number is a big fat zero. So they just continue to pass laws, and they never seem to sit back and examine why the law they passed the previous year isn't exactly working out the way that they had planned. So they just pass another law. And that's where we began today's program. In Monday's Judiciary Committee hearing, a couple from Cody told the committee about a custody situation that was happening with their granddaughter. The child's father continued to violate the court's orders, and really nothing ever happened to him. And so the cycle just continued. The committee was talking about how best to approach this situation and prevent these ongoing custody disputes. Or at the very least, hold the people that ignore the court's orders to account. After the testimony from the grandparents had concluded, there was a fascinating discussion between Representative Mark Jennings and the committee's co-chairman, Senator Landon. I'm going to play the entire exchange for you, and then we'll talk about it at the end. 
The soundbite begins with Senator Landon talking about something that he calls interference. And what that is, is when one parent is interfering with the court's custody order. Here it is. There's not very many children in Wyoming who don't start the formal education process by five years old. I, I don't really know hardly any, any young people who wait all the way till seven years old. So I think... I think that should be a piece of the draft on on this interference piece. Further thoughts? Are, is there anything we're missing, committee members? I think we, oh, I, uh, Representative Jennings, did you still have something? We'll come back to the co-chair. I, I do, Mr. Chairman. So I, I don't have much issue with looking at the interference and, and uh, that aspect of it. But I think we miss a piece here. We can write laws all day long. But if they're not followed, it doesn't really solve much. Well, I'm more than willing to look at some of these things, the, the, uh, and even the draft of the Prevention Act. I think that gets us into a very scary area, and we become thought police when we ask the courts there are, that are already in a very difficult position. But it seems to me like that we're missing a part of this puzzle, that uh, in the case where we heard the um, county attorney was not not involved in doing a, a part of that um, interference. It became a criminal thing at that point. And so I, I look at that and I think, well, this is already on the books. So maybe we need to look at why are things like that not uh, kicked up to the higher level of a criminal activity and if it does become a criminal activity, in their case, 45 days, well, there was interference and there was contempt. And so those things are already on. And I, I was going to ask uh, Representative Oakley because she'd have a firsthand experience in that. I'm sure it's not the same in every single county, but uh, it just seems to me that part of our obligation would be oversight. And if the judiciary is having an issue here that we need to address that when something goes moves from civil to criminal and yet we kick it out 45 days. I mean, why? I mean, for me, I, I'm as interested in that part of this equation as I am in passing a new law. And I'm, I'm certainly not interested in passing a, a thought police thing, even if it's the courts that do it, they're already, they already work on these cases. And I don't want to make it harder for them, but I, I really puzzle over when it becomes goes from civil to criminal, why these things are already on the books. So maybe it's not that we need to write a new law. We need to figure out why they're not being prosecuted as such and in a timely manner once it moves from civil to, to criminal. And so I don't know if that's something that uh, Representative Oakley would like to address. I know that there's backlog and I know that it's hard, but these are our children and uh, parents' rights are involved. But once you move to the criminal side of that, if there's a problem in our system, we ought to be addressing that, it seems to me, as much as trying to write a new law. I would, uh, Representative, thank you. I, I would just suggest that sometimes it does take a, another law to broaden the foundation and to help our court system understand that no we we actually mean this and, and we're going to make it 
but uh, we're going to put it in a criminal statute. But um, I look forward to the debate going forward. You're right. That's that's what we'll be talking about. Second meeting and third meeting. Uh, if we have a couple of things drafted up. but So what Representative Jennings is talking about here is you have somebody who's already violated the court's orders, in most cases, multiple times. You would think that that would move that civil violation, that is, violating the custody order, into a criminal violation, punishable by imprisonment or fine. But that's not happening in most cases. And the 45 days that Representative Jennings was talking about is that the individual in question violated the court's orders, and then the next hearing was set for 45 days after that, during which time the child was kept out of school for 26 days. The person that was really affected by this whole situation was the kid who wasn't allowed to go to school for 26 days in a row. So the question that Representative Jennings was posing to the committee is, why aren't these laws being enforced? We already have them on the books. Why do we need to create a new one when there's already one there that says exactly what we ought to do? And you heard the response from Senator Landon. Well, we just need more laws. Here it is again. I would just suggest that sometimes it does take a, another law to broaden the foundation and uh, to help our court system understand that, no, we, we actually mean this. It takes another law to help our courts understand that we really mean it this time. So right there, he's telling you that the real problem is not that we don't have the laws on the books, it's that the courts are not prosecuting them. And it's not just custody disputes. This is an issue we're dealing with system-wide. I know someone in Buffalo, Wyoming, that already has two felonies for possession and distribution of narcotics and didn't ever serve a day in jail, only got probation on those two charges, and then committed a third felony, actually multiple felonies, same thing, possession with intent to distribute, and only ended up serving 30 days in the county jail. Well, and there's some probation to go along with it. But it didn't work the two previous times. What happened to the whole idea of three strikes and you're out? It works in baseball. Why can't it work in criminal law? The point I'm getting at is that we're not addressing the real problem. And in this case, it's why aren't these crimes being prosecuted? You have somebody who's clearly violating the law, they're clearly harming a child, and yet we do nothing. Or we set a hearing that's 45 days out, allowing them plenty of time to continue harming the kid. In the example I gave you just a minute ago, all three of those felonies, and actually there were lots more because they were all plea bargained down, but all of them were committed in Buffalo, Wyoming, all of them by the same individual, and all of them had the same punishment, relatively speaking. So what could possibly lead us to believe that that individual isn't going to do the exact same thing that they've done three times prior? Or in other words, what leads that individual to think that they're going to get punished this time around? It's just an insane situation. And the truth is, we have laws that cover just about every offense. All we have to do is enforce them. This whole conversation in the Judiciary Committee carried in to the second day. Most of what they did on Tuesday was just agency reports. For example, there was a report by the Chief Justice of the Wyoming Supreme Court, Kate Fox. What caught my attention on the second day, however, was not testimony that was given by one of the agencies trying to protect their delicate position that they're in, or to attempt to justify the actions that they haven't taken. 
It was what Representative Ken Pendergraft of House District 29 had to say during the public testimony period of the hearing. He was spot on, and I'm just going to play what he said in its entirety. He was Jesus that said the meek will inherit the earth. That word meek is an interesting word because when you get down to the bottom of it, what it means is power with restraint. And so what I'm here advocating for today, I would say, is a judicious use of force. As legislators, we have a big stick. And it is kind of a knee-jerk response of people whenever there's a societal ill to say, oh, there ought to be a law and governments must do something. And sometimes I think we all get a little bit mad with that power and, and are very quick to go out and create yet another law. I was speaking at a, an event here a few days ago, and I asked the crowd, I said, do you, do you think that Wyoming has enough laws? Is there anybody here that thinks we need another law? Not a soul raised their hand in an audience of about 100, 150 people. Part of the basis for my feeling is that every time we cede responsibility, our personal responsibility, we cede a little bit of liberty with that. And so on the one hand, you have a situation that would be anarchy, and we don't want that. And on the other hand, you have a situation that would be tyranny, or we, we empower someone to become tyrannical, and we certainly don't want that. Uh, I'm an old soldier, represented the Washits, an old cop. Each of us have had a substantial amount of training, I would suspect, on the judicious use of force. And that's what I'm appealing for today. We, I, I guess I would sum it up and say, we've got a lot of laws that Representative Jennings brought up a couple of times. What about the laws that are already on the books when we were discussing the possibility of, of newer legislation? And... I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't ever need to make another law. But we really need to make sure that we're employing effectively the laws that are already on the books before we go and pile on to it. And it's also a very unique opportunity to get to speak to both legislators and adjudicators. Because I speak to adjudicators, unless that law is enforced... It's meaningless. In fact, it's worse than meaningless because what it does is devalue or inflate in some way uh, the meaninglessness of law, the, dis the amount of disrespect for a law. So if you have a whole bunch of laws um, and nobody's really paying any attention to them, then you devalue the rule of law. And I would like us to try to work our way back to where we greatly value the rule of law. We don't have many laws, but the ones we do have, we enforce. And I'll illustrate this in closing. Um, I like to fix things. I'm a mechanic. I'm a carpenter. I like to build things. I got a lot of power tools. Make Tim Taylor look like a piker. Okay. So I've been doing this for 35 or 40 years and accumulated all of these tools. And the company that I was a partner with until very recently, when I took on this responsibility. I could no longer give them the 40 hours a week. And so I sold my shares. And in so doing, I had to give up some of the other perks that I have. One of them was a big tool trailer. And they gave me a little one. 
And so I've got to go through all my tools and figure out what do I really need. You know, I have seven cordless circular saws. That's kind of dumb. But it is so easy when in the heat of the moment to go out and just say, oh, we need a new one. Or I, I need one, so I'll just go get a new one. And we get one to do a particular task. Before we pass new laws, let's make sure that we're using the current laws to their full extent. With that, I'll close my remarks. And if anybody needs a circular saw, just ask. I'm very proud to call that guy my friend. We don't really need any more new laws. We need to enforce the ones that we have. And then if we discover that those are inadequate, then we can pass a new law. Not before. Well, that'll do it for this morning's broadcast. Have a good rest of your week, and we'll talk again tomorrow during the Thursday live program that begins at 10 a.m. You can find the link at CowboyStatePolitics.com or on the Cowboy State Politics Facebook page. But for now, from the base of the Bighorns, in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming, I'm David Iverson, and this is the one and only Cowboy State Politics. <laughs>